you're doing. You're waiting for that thing to be ready, right? I got you. Okay. Good morning again. This morning I want to begin by posing a question to every one of you. And I want to do it with the Apostle Paul's words, with the question that he poses to all of us Christians. Since we have come to faith in Jesus, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, when it comes to God's moral laws, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. When it comes to the laws of God in the Scripture about what is right and what is wrong, the do's and the don'ts, if you want, you can start with the Ten Commandments. Are we as Christians called to walk by them? If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're saved by grace, through faith alone, are you therefore now to live your life ignoring God's commandments on how to conduct your life? Or are you, because of that grace, to love His law? This is a crucial question, particularly because Jesus himself said that when he comes back one day, he will say to many professing Christians, Lord, they say, Jesus, we've done this, we've done that. And he said, I will say to them, depart from me, because I don't know you. You who are workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. That's the question. Are we to be without law from God governing our lives as Christians? Or are we to love His law? Let's pray. Father, you are good. We have seen your goodness poured out in your loving kindness. Your mercy and your grace. From after the fall and the beginning of Genesis and all the way up to this very moment. And we see why. Because of your son. Because he bore our sins. He took our punishment. He was our propitiation. And you, through him, conquered death for all of us in his resurrection. We thank you for such a gift that can only be received by hearts of faith. So this morning, help us. Help us walk this tightrope of understanding the Christian life in light of your holy, good, just law of grace. Amen.
This is week 18 in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And last week, we saw the Mosaic Covenant being instituted, the covenant God makes with Israel through Moses, or in other ways to say it, is it therefore God giving to Israel the law, the law of Moses. And that law, from then on up till today, has been misconstrued, misunderstood, misapplied, and no wonder, because in my experience now as a Christian and as a pastor, and one of the most difficult theological subjects in the Christian church has been for centuries and is today law and gospel. Gospel and law. Are they against each other or are they in a continuum? How does that work? And my guess is that even in here this morning, there's confusion in some of our minds when we read, on the one hand, what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 14. You are not under law, but under grace. But you put that up against what Paul said in the very same letter, in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Answer, no, no way. But on the contrary, we uphold the law. Can you feel it? How shall we grasp it? Let me just put, put some foundation down first. The word law in the New Testament is the Greek word namas. You know, the Hebrew is Torah, the law. But namas, that term namas is used at least three different ways in different contexts in the New Testament. For instance, it, it could essentially refer almost synonymously with all the writings of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the law. And the whole system of God's working, etc. Just, you know, assuming that. Secondly, it refers to just technically the law. The Mosaic law. Referring to the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For instance, when Jesus says, and they understand exactly what he's saying in his context, in Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So distinguishing the law there to be those particular books where the law is technically given to Israel. And now, a third meaning of the way the word law is used in the New Testament, particularly by Paul, is when it's used to refer to that twisted, misconstruing, misconstruing of the law itself. In other words, a, a twisted approach 
to God's law in the books of Moses when it turns his law into legalism, which by its definition is sinful. In other words, it's an approach to God, to God's law, without a heart of faith. That's legalism. It therefore turns God's commandments into a way in which I'll perform that and thus earn God's grace, earn God's blessing to me. Look at that. And that's what Jesus ran into throughout his ministry and why he was so harsh with them. That's who Paul was before his conversion to Christ. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness in the law, what did he say? I'm a sinner? No, I was blameless. No wonder he was angry at the gospel. Because the law was a stepping stone for his own pride and arrogance. And that's legalism. But in the New Testament, in the, in the New Testament era, there's no particular term for legalism like we use the words ism today. They didn't have that. So when the Apostle Paul wanted to refer to that kind of an approach to God, an approach to his law, he would use the word law or particularly this phrase, works of the law. For instance... In Galatians 2.16, he says it this way. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but they're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Or in Galatians 3.2, Galatians, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law that they're being tempted to go into? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing? Hearing of God's Word and the Gospel through a heart of faith. So when he speaks that way about the works of the law, he does not mean that Christians are therefore not to follow God's moral commandments. He doesn't mean, don't worry about the commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. That is not what Paul means when he speaks negatively about the works of the law. What he means at its core is that, Christian, you are in no way under the law, under the burden of it as a job description that you better do in order to earn, get, ascertain salvation. That's what he's driving at. All right. So, this is what I'm going to do. I have four main points. I'm going to give you the whole sermon in the next 80, 90 seconds and then go through each point slowly. This is where I'm going. Number one, 
the law of God given through Moses, the Ten Commandments and other laws, particularly the moral law. I don't want to talk about the ceremony and all that and, and, and take time this morning. But the law is fulfilled when we love our neighbor. That's point one. Point two. Love is the outworking of authentic, genuine, saving faith in God and in the cross. Which leads to point three. Therefore, the law under Moses and any moral commandments that Jesus has clearly given us today, the law did not ever call for a meritorious work. Do it! And therefore, I will grant you your paycheck of blessing. The law always called for an obedience from a heart of faith. Which leads to point four. Therefore, we believers in Jesus Christ must obey the Old Testament commandments. The same way we obey those numerous New Testament commandments. Not in order to win God's favor toward us, but because we already depend on His free grace and we trust that His commands will lead to full and lasting joy. Now, let's do it all again slowly. Point number one, loving your neighbor, loving others horizontally is the fulfillment of the law. I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 13. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians, says this in verses 8 through 10. Believer, owe no one anything except, this is what you owe, except to love each other. There it is. Now he says why. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. There it is. And if you're confused, he goes on to make very plain what he's referring to. So he goes straight to the Ten Commandments. And he says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are all summed up in the word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, don't you get it? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so, here's the Apostle Paul. He boils the whole law down into that one statement in the law, love your neighbor 
as yourself. And what he is doing is the same thing that the Lord Jesus himself did when he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, I will add this because I'm positive he would agree with this, or what you don't want others to do to you, so do also to them, or don't do to them. And then he concludes it, for this is the law and the prophets. And his brother James, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 8, said it a little bit differently when he wrote, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, and he goes to that same line, that is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing well. And he says, there it is. You want the law? You want the royal law, the law of laws that fulfills the law? It's right there. And so the commands of God, in other words, they have loving your neighbor as their goal, as the aim. And that's the first point then. The law of Moses is fulfilled when one loves the other, the neighbor. Point two. That love is not just coming out of nowhere. It's got a source in the Scripture. That love is the fruit of saving real faith in the heart. Love is not a work that we do on our own to show ourselves meritorious towards God. That's sin. Love is the fruit of faith in God's promises. See, genuine love will, will lead to good works, to actions, but genuine love is not synonymous with those actions. What do I mean? Say that you, you, you have tons of money and resources and you are put before starving children. Okay, James addresses that. Ah, be well and good and good. No, no, no. Okay, how are we going to feed them? And so you, you buy tons of peanut butter and jelly and bread and you organize and get others with you and you make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and start feeding the children. The fruit of the love is the action of feeding the good work. But it's not love it, synonymously. What I mean is this. You can program a computer or a robot to do that. And if the robot is making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and handing them out to starving children, is the robot loving? No. The programmer may be, but not the robot because love is deeper than the work. It's prior to the work. It is what enables that good work. And that's why the Apostle Paul can make 
this stunning statement in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. If I give away, there's an act. If I give away all that I have, and even if I deliver my body to be burned, give up my life. But have not love, then I gain nothing. He seems to think there's a way to do acts of giving away all your stuff to people, even dying for them, and it not necessarily be love. How is that possible? What is love then? The love that Paul, the love that John, the love that Jesus, the love that the gospel, the love that the New Testament is talking about is impossible apart from regeneration. Now, look, I do not go to my own life and say, how's my experience? Let me preach Joe's life. I'm trying to deal with what the Holy Scripture says to us. And so listen carefully to what John writes in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for, because the reason is this, love is from God. That's why. And... Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So he seems to say, if you got two persons doing the action of feeding the poor, in the way John thinks, one is a Christian who has come to saving faith because of new birth in Jesus, and it could absolutely be the act of love that he's referring to, the proof that he's born of God. This other person does not believe in Christ, is outside of Christ. Thank God they're doing that work, but somehow he's distinguishing because he says everyone who loves has been born of God. That's his term for born again. That's and, and he says, and knows God personally. So where there is no Regeneration, saving faith, uniting a person's heart to the Creator through Jesus Christ. There is no love. Because love is the outworking of genuine, saving trust and faith. That's how the Apostle Paul, we saw this a few weeks ago, that's how he put it very clearly in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But, and now you've got to add what he just said, that's how he's writing, but what does count for everything is faith, which works itself out in loving others. The origin of love is a new heart, new birth which creates the faith. 
The origin of love is the faith in God, in the gospel, in His promises, in His commands. And that's why further down in Galatians, Paul will say, we know the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. The love he's talking about only happens if you're born again and you're walking by the Spirit and it comes from the heart worked by the Spirit. It's not something that we, in and of ourselves, without the Spirit, can produce. It flows from faith, the working of the Spirit in us. So how do we become more loving people? Here's one way Paul, I think, would say it. Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law? No. He does it by your listening, hearing, and responding with a heart of faith. He says the path <coughs> that believers walk the path of the Holy Spirit working in us is not, okay, give me a list of good works to do and let me just go do them. He says, you could do that without a heart of faith. And that could be legalism in the work of the law. He says, what we need is this constant hearing, responding to God in His holy word with a heart of faith. So, that's the point. Love, it is the fruit of faith which the Holy Spirit is producing in us. Paul made this comment in 1 Timothy 1.5. Timothy, the goal of our charge. What are you about, Paul? He says, here it is. Here's the goal of our charge. It is love that issues from something. It's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Only genuine faith is going to produce that love. And so, every one of us who calls ourselves a Christian, we stand before the Apostle Paul, and he writes this to us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Now, depending on which day of the week it is, depending on your walk with Jesus, on that Thursday afternoon, at that moment will make the difference between what we just read causing you to be utterly depressed or, ah, kind of happy. Jesus, it's been so good the last week because I haven't been around any human beings and I've been praying or whatever it is or anywhere in between. Because this tension is the Christian life of faith. You see, I can, let me just, this is, this is how it is, it's you too. As believers, every day, I wake up with somebody lying beside me. And, and I don't mean my wife. Someone actually lying within me. New Testament Paul loves to call this my flesh. I wake up and there's my flesh. His term for my remaining sinful nature. And here's the reality. That flesh of mine and of yours is absolutely against what we just read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Our flesh says the world, the wife, the husband, the children, the people at work, the other drivers, they all exist to serve my felt needs. So what do we do? When we hear the command to love others, what's the Christian life? It is to fight the fight of faith. We must constantly turn away from the beckoning of our sinful inclination particularly doing so in prayer, in communion, in, in, in the experiencing of our relationship with our Holy Father over His truth unfolded in Scripture, begging for the strength of the Holy Spirit. It is constantly being in need of remembering his promises. Remembering what He has done. Remembering what He promises to do. And so you pops into your head Hebrews 13 verse 5. I just don't know if I can do what you're calling me to do today. I feel overwhelmed. And then the promise comes. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore we say, God is on my side. I will not be afraid. I can go. 
Well, let me give you one more. And we're going to take our time on it. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Matthew 7. As Jesus is teaching here, but first let me note, I want you to jump down to verse 12 because what we need as Christians is to experience verse 12. Love. Where he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. But you can't just go there. Because verse 12 is directly connected to verses 7 and 11 with the word, therefore. Now, I know the English standard so, but it means the same thing. In Greek, it's clear. He is drawing an inference. Therefore, verses 7 to 11 are the foundation. They are the ground of, since that's true, trust me in this, therefore go. So therefore, let's look at verses 7 to 11. The power to experience verse 12. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Because everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? <laughs> of course not. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, when we Christians, a praying people, when we quiet our hearts in the presence of our Father with these great promises, I will open, I will give, then our faith grows. And our heart rests in God's hands. Then fears dissipated. What it would cost me to do unto that person what I'd have them do to me. And the more that happens in degrations, the more we're free to love again. The more I know I experience my Christ belittling selfishness shrink a little bit more. So I don't feel as angry or as self-centered or as depressed or as anxious as I did 10 minutes earlier. But I feel more of the urge of the Holy Spirit. The urge to love, the urge to give, the urge to serve. And so, 
point is, to whatever degree we have the work of the Holy Spirit producing that kind of love for others, it is ultimately owing to our trusting, our faith in His promises. And that leads to the third main point, the third reality, therefore. The law given by God through Moses is a law always calling for faith in the heart. See, if love is what the law aimed at, which the New Testament makes crystal clear, then only faith can produce that real love. Then when the law was given, it was always calling for an obedience of faith. That's what Caleb had. That's what Moses had. That's what Joshua had. That's what David had. Sinners being saved by faith. And to approach the law, to approach any of God's commandments, apart from faith in His mercy, His grace, His goodness, is definitionally sinful. I want you to see this is the Apostle Paul's opinion. Turn to Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles, non-Jews, who didn't have the law of Moses, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness now because of the gospel going out and being preached to them, have attained righteousness, the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. They have attained righteousness. That is, the righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Paul poses the question, why? Why did they not reach righteousness through the law? Answer, because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. Thus they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That little phrase, as if, is really important because that's Paul's way of clearly showing that they approached the law totally wrong-headed and wrong-hearted. Missed it. 
because it was never to be based on the idea of I will perform obedience to commands whether they be ceremonial, circumcision, kosher diet, or thou shalt not murder, and then I will be in a place where God now owes me his favor. It never, ever was intended to be approached that way. And that's what Paul means by works. If you try to use the law as a job description by which you're going to earn something from God, then you're doing something that the law itself opposes. The law of Moses itself has always been against the works of the law, the way Paul uses that term. The law never commanded anyone to try to merit salvation, righteousness, grace. The law is always based on faith in God's promises, not on meritorious works. The mistake that Israel and Paul himself as a Jew made was not that they paid attention to the book of the law. That was not their mistake. The mistake that they made is that they approached the law, they pursued the law in the wrong way. Pursuing it by works instead of for what it really is. Amazing grace with a heart of faith. And that's what the Apostle Paul means where I started off back in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, when he says, do we then overthrow the law and get rid of it, undone it? God gave the law, now he's got a whole new plan. Is that what we're doing? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Answer, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Gosh, I hope this helps. So now, let's go back and look at Moses, the law itself, just for a few minutes. And see how it's saying the same thing. One of the purposes... In the law and during that period and under Moses, one of the purposes for the exodus out of slavery, the way God did it, the way he intended to do it, the way he preordained to do it, by ten plagues, by ten miraculous signs, by going through the Red Sea, by feeding them from heaven, giving them water out of a rock, one of the main reasons God did that was to say, look, now trust me. I will take care of you. Look what I've done thus far, and I'm promised to continue to do it. Believe me. That's the law. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, we read, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people 
feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And therefore, when God then, we saw last week, when he gives the Ten Commandments, he begins it with this. I am the Lord your God, this is important, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What's he doing? He's saying, remember how I demonstrated my love for you. So trust in me now. Don't look to any other source. No other God. The Ten Commandments are based on a call of faith in their hearts. In the God of the Exodus. Who thus far has absolutely freed you and delivered you miraculously. Trust Him. Ten Commandments are calling forth faith in the God of the Exodus. Just like the moral teachings in the New Testament are calling forth faith in the Lord Jesus who went to the cross. The Exodus was a sign. It was the foundation now of this faith to go on now trusting Him. Just as the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a sign for believers. Go on. Trusting Him. Faith that God aims to produce through the Exodus is what brings the confidence that He will do for us in the future as He has done for us in the past. And that's the structure of the New Testament. He who did not spare his own son, <laughs> but he gave him up for us all. That's how Paul feels. Believe, how in the world will he not also by him freely give to us everything we possibly need? It's the same structure. In one more in Deuteronomy. Moses recounts now 40 long years in the wilderness. And they're about to cross over into the promised land. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting with verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them, the enemy. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe. 
the Lord your God. Some did. The majority didn't. It was always calling for a heart to believe, to trust him. The Exodus, Moses says, was a sign. God will take care of you. It was the foundation of Israel's faith. And that faith is the basis of the law of Moses. So when God gave the law to the children of Israel, it was simply spelling out the way that the Israelites will live if they genuinely feel that their future is secure in God and he's trustworthy. That's it. If you do, you won't worship Baal and the gods of the peoples in the land that I'm bringing you. If you do, you will have no other gods before me. If you do, you will not live your life carrying around the name of Yahweh in vain. You won't do it. If you trust me that I have you as the sovereign creator of the universe, your goodwill, you won't steal. You will not abuse others for your own selfish gain by murdering them or by bearing false witness against another or by seducing someone else's spouse. If you trust me, you won't be doing that. Don't we sin as Christians? Yes. And to the degrees of sin, all of our sin as true believers with true faith is always a sign at that moment of not trusting, of not acting in faith. So the law of Moses is a description of the obedience of faith. It was never a job description. For now, see if you can earn your way to heaven. And that brings me to the final fourth point and to the question I began with. Therefore, shall we continue in sin since we're saved by grace through faith alone, apart from any works? Answer emphatically, no, we shall not. But what naturally falls, f follows from the first three points is that we must, therefore, as believers, fulfill the Old Testament commandments the same way that we are called to walk by the New Testament commandments. Not to win God's favor toward us, but because we already depend on His free grace and we trust the gospel, his promises, his commands that they will lead to real everlasting life. 
and joy. One more. Turn to Romans 8. What Paul says here in Romans 8, verses 3 to 4, I mean, really, start back at verse 1, but what he's saying is essentially this. The law cannot save you. And what he means is this, as we have throughout this series laid out piece by piece as we follow through redemptive history. We're all sinners born into sin, dead to God, have no faith in him. Saving faith, faith that trusts. We don't. And therefore, you're in that state. You're in the wilderness. God speaks from Sinai, and he gives you his law. It can't save you. Because to have God's truth, to have his promises, without having your heart changed, makes it impossible for the law to any degree be fulfilled in you. Because it always called for faith. So when Paul speaks, like in 2 Corinthians, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He doesn't mean what some Christians mean. Let's just try to forget God said, do not slander, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not commit fornication. Let's, let's forget that because I don't, I'm not under law. I would have been a great, he doesn't mean that. He means without new birth, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are doomed. The law, religion, under God's sovereign providence, demonstrated. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's harshest with people of God's holy word who turned it into something it was never meant to be. And it condemns you, and that's all it can do. And only Christ can save Moses, or Caleb, or Joshua, or David. Only Jesus saves. And he does a miracle of new birth, causing faith to arise in their hearts. That was a long introduction to Romans 8. So start with verse 1. Paul writes, believer, there is therefore, because these first seven chapters, right now, believer, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Here's his reasoning. Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hold on. Paul saw his life like that. When Jesus converted him, regenerated him by the Holy Spirit, 
That was a religious man of religious men before who had the book memorized almost and misconstrued. And he realized that all of his life up until sometime in his 30s, even though he was deceived about it, new birth opened his eyes and showed him how he was utterly condemned because he was left in his sin. And when the law meets a spirit soul of a human being who is dead, it is only a law of sin and death. And he says, therefore, Christian, there is no more condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life who caused you to be born again has set you free from the law of sin and death. For here it is. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, the sinful nature, it could not do. The law couldn't save you. But by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now don't stop reading. Because He's not done with the sentence. He condemned sin in the flesh for this purpose. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Pause. Paul does not mean here as he means elsewhere that that one man, Jesus, came and perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. And thus his righteousness before God in his humanity is imputed to us. Paul clearly teaches that as central to the gospel. That's not what he means here by fulfilled the law. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit and that's what's happening it's called sanctification are Christ's people a people who walk live patterns of life that could be described as workers of lawlessness. No. Paul teaches we're not a, a lawless people. We are sinners. Romans 7 comes right before this. There's something different. Something is happening in us. Repentance is happening in us. Victories by the Spirit are happening in us. Fruit of the Spirit is bearing in us. Battles against our flesh is happening in us. We are according 
to this, fulfilling the law. How? And he goes on, by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith, who's working that faith out in loving others, which is the fulfilling of the law. And what that fulfilling of the law looks like, you can say, fulfilling the law by loving others, you can say, it looks like this. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. As opposed to resisting, repenting from, turning away from the works of the flesh. So that's why people who have been justified by grace, through faith alone, apart from any works, they are a people who walk by the Spirit. And thus they are a people who love God's law. Or say, let me say it this way. I'm going to close with this, Alex. Who love Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And and moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Let us pray. Father, again, on behalf of all of us who believe and those who will, we thank you that, yes, Christ was always the teleos, the goal of the law. And it always pointed to him. They pointed to him as the law fulfiller on behalf of sinners on why they, before he came and we after, can have your righteousness, which is a gift to us from the outside, and thus see the fruit that we belong to you in whatever measures mixed with sin. Oh, who shall deliver us from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to you, oh, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have begun a good work, and you will fulfill it. Thus far you have acted As each of us now are praying, thinking about when you plucked us out of darkness into light, and thus you will see us to the end. You're faithful. Thank you. Amen.